Welcome to the Biblical Languages Podcast, brought to you by Biblingo. We bring together the latest research in linguistics, language acquisition, and biblical studies to better understand the biblical languages and ultimately the biblical text. As always, this episode is brought to you by Biblingo, the premier solution for learning, maintaining, and enjoying the biblical languages. Visit biblingo.org to learn more and start your 10-day free trial. I am Kevin Grosso, your host for this episode, and I'm excited to talk with Dr. Benjamin Cantor today about his new books on the phonology of New Testament Greek. Welcome to the show, Ben. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. So just a little bit about uh, Ben. He is a research associate at the University of Cambridge in the United Kingdom. He received his BA in classical studies with an emphasis in Greek from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem in 2012. And subsequently, he received his PhD in Hebrew Bible from the University of Texas in 2017. He specializes in the historical phonology of Greek and Hebrew and has particular interest in ancient Greek and Hebrew pedagogy. In addition to his research work, he also runs a website, koinegreek.com, which focuses on providing living language resources for students and scholars of ancient Greek. And so he has two books uh, by Erdmans that just came out. Um, one of them, you need a small uh, hand truck to pick up. And then one of the other one is is quite quite uh, small. Yeah, I, I got it in the mail and I, I knew it was coming. And I was like, what is this? <laughs> so I uh I'm a bit out of hand. <laughs> yes. So um he that's what we're gonna be talking about today. And for those of you that you know know his work, he is very much in the um you know phonology world. How did we pronounce New Testament Greek at the time of um, the New Testament, um, and not necessarily how it is done today in the classroom. So let's just start there. What what got you interested in the topic of um, the pronunciation of biblical Greek to begin with? Yeah, so for me, I think the, the, the interest in phonology was really practical at the start because I got into it through getting into speaking ancient Greek as a living language. And I go back to my days as an undergraduate at Hebrew University. You know, I had been studying classical Greek as my major for a couple of years. And then heading into the last year of my degree, uh, we were going to be required to read just hundreds of pages of classical Greek texts, um, you know, one book or, or author at a time, and then be able to be tested on it on different things, but without tools, without dictionaries or any reference things. And so I really, you know, going into that last year, really needed to be able to have a real good proficiency with Greek. And so I, I first took a class, an intensive course that summer in using ancient Greek as a living language. I was with Biblical Language Center at the time, and they used sort of a historical reconstructed pronunciation. And so I adopted that, and that was sort of the beginning of my interest in it. And then there were a couple of things later on the way that sort of increased that interest and, and developed it more. And one was working on, uh, so there's a, a series out of De Greuter called uh, Corpus Inscriptionum Judae Palestinae, which serves as the corpus for a lot of the uh, material uh, on my books, where they document all the inscriptions in various languages from ancient Judea Palestine. And so I was kind of, you know, a very, you know, low level assistant on that project when I was at 
people you in the classics department. And so there you're reading all the original material and dealing with it. And so you get interested then. And then actually what first, what was the sort of origins of this book in its very um, initial stage was a chapter of my PhD thesis on the Greek uh, phonology of the second column of origins hexapla. And I was, you know, a lot of scholars who have dealt with that in the past uh, just kind of assume general Greek phonology um, reconstructions like Alan's work and so forth, which we'll probably talk about, you know, more on, about that field in a little while. But, but I thought, okay, if I'm going to, you know, work on how Hebrew was pronounced, for, the, for those who don't know, the second column of Origins Hexapla is an ancient text we have where the Hebrew of the Bible is actually written out in Greek letters. And so you can know how we pronounce, how they pronounced Hebrew in, in ancient times by reading how they write it in Greek. So a word like shalom would be written sigma, alpha, lambda, omega, mi. And so they wrote the whole Bible out like that. And we have fragments of that remain. So I was researching that. I thought, well, we really need to know then how Greek was pronounced at the time to interpret how Hebrew was pronounced. And so that is what started actually my process of going through and kind of a bit more systematically trying to document what, what the Judeo-Palestinian material gives us. And then that eventually became uh, these books. Yeah. You just think about doing that for like with origin, it's like, first of all, why would you do that to begin with? And, but <laughs> thank you so much. For, <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, it's like he, I mean, I'm sure he had no idea that we would be talking about it now, you know? Um, but yeah, so that's, that's really interesting. So um, we don't normally focus on phonology <laughs> I'm I'm yeah. more of a syntax and semantics guy. Um, not that I know nothing about phonology, but um, I you know I I was thinking back to the episodes we've done, and I don't think we've actually done any on phonology. So can you just tell us um, for the non linguists out there what is phonology? Um, and and you know do it so that you know my grandma who is definitely listening to this can understand. <laughs> Sounds good. Um... So phonology can be thought of succinctly as the study of how different sounds in a language contrast with each other to make meaning, right? A very simple example would be something like app and tap, right? Every part of that word is the same except for the first sound. In one, I say k, and in the other, I say t. So cap and tap are two different words. We know that k and t then make a difference. Uh, those two sounds are a meaningful contrast. Uh, they have a different sound, and, and, and that is relevant for meaning, right? So there's, there's other sounds that aren't uh, necessarily relevant for meaning, right? Like in English, we don't have a contrast between p and p, right? An unaspirated p and an aspirated p. Like if you compare the words happy and pool, we say the word p, the sound p slightly differently in those, but they don't accomplish meaning, right? So that's an even more granular level, which is called phonetics, the study of just actual sounds in a language that don't affect meaning. But phonology is all about those sounds that do affect meaning and do make a contrast. And so that's sort of the base blocks for then determining a bit higher level of morphology, which is how you put those sounds together to have units, which um, can, can make words. And then, you know, the next level above that, more grammar and syntax and things like that. So uh, yeah, so phonology, the study of sounds that accomplish uh, differences in meaning um, in a language. Yeah, yeah, that's great. And, and you know, obviously the the key term, just to add, you know, the, the phoneme term, um, 
which I don't think you mentioned, you know, but, but I obviously explained, I, I think a, a good way to contrast it with your example is, is like, um, you know, cap is how you would normally pronounce that word in English. Um, like you said, with the aspirated stop. Um, but if you unaspirate it, so like in other languages, they don't have aspirated stops or whatever. Um, so if someone else were pronouncing it, they might say cap, you know, mm. and we would hear that as cap, right? Like we wouldn't hesitate to interpret it in that way. Um, and so that tells us, right, that that even though you have two different sounds, right, you ha- actually have one phoneme for that, um, you know, k- sound in English. Um, so, yeah, that's that's um, that's great. I don't know if my grandma would be able to understand it, but hopefully most yeah. of our listeners will, will be following. Um, so so I um, you start out with an intro and I thought this was very interesting because this actually is something that we've talked about on the podcast um, and something that we will talk about more is, is what reading is. So you, you say your intro is, so you want to read parentheses, pronounce biblical Greek. Um, what is the relationship between reading and pronouncing words in your view? And are they the same and how, how are they related? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. And I think, I think sort of, uh, strongly connected to that question is the idea of what actually is a text, right? Is a text something that's written down, right? We can say, oh, I have a text here on this piece of paper or on this page of a book. Or, you know, in kind of the more linguistic sense, is a, ta- is a text just right, a passage of some length that's a unified whole, whether it's written or spoken, but it's just a linguistic sort of unit, a discourse that you can kind of conceive of as a as a thing. And and then also, you know, what is the language? Is the language what is written down or is the language something that's in speakers' heads or is the language something that's spoken and used? And so I think to answer that question, right, of what's the relationship between pronouncing and reading, I think, uh, I think, you know, I have to take into account all of those things and, and really come back to the question is what actually is the language, right? And is text, the written text, a tool to help us to remember what the actual language is. You know, there's this story of a rabbi in the Talmud, I think, who's going to, um, he's traveling through Israel to go to a village to celebrate Purim, and he realizes that he's forgotten the uh, uh, the Esther scroll. And so when he gets to the village, he has it memorized, so he writes it down, and then he reads from um, the scroll for it. And I think that's a great illustration because it shows that all of that existed without it being written down, um, yet there is still something this whole another topic of the relevance for it of, of the written component in the, in the um, sort of liturgy. But if we see what's written as a clue to help us understand what the language is that's beyond what is written, you know, you might think of uh, if you took a Bible passage in English and you had five different people, whether they're all American or from different English speaking countries, read it, they would all read it slightly differently. Right. Especially if you remove punctuation, they would pause at different times. They might inflect different things as questions. Their pronunciation of individual words might be slightly different. And I think all of that, and, and they might even do that in a way to accomplish differences in meaning, right? Like some people might inflect different things with more emotion or more anger, or more inquisitiveness and, and can actually accomplish differences in meaning. And I think that shows that a text is only partial, right? Some languages with their writing systems mark stress and accents. Some don't. You just have to know where it is based on knowing the language. And I think all of this points to the fact that languages beyond text 
right? Some languages throughout history have used different scripts to represent their languages, right? You think of Jews in the Middle Ages might use, some of them might use Arabic script to write Arabic when they were speaking it as their native language. Others might use Hebrew to write Arabic script. And so I think it, it all comes back to getting beyond the written text and realizing that the written text isn't actually the language. And if the written text isn't actually the language, then we have to start thinking of the language as something beyond that. And once we do that, then I think reading is, right, uh, just being clued into something that exists beyond the written language, and that is the phonology of the language. That. Yeah, that's in- that's interesting. It reminds me of um, you know Socrates' uh, skepticism of the value of written uh, hmm. texts. But um, yeah, so basically what, I, if I'm hearing you correctly to like kind of synthesize what you're saying is hmm. that the... Um, text is and and reading therefore is really a window into the spoken you know words and therefore it is necessarily pronounced right in in the sense that um you know what we're really doing when we're reading is we are um we are speaking the language um you know physically with a uh I mean, trying to capture, you know, the same sort of way that they would have said it, <laughs> literally. Is that is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. And, and you can think of it this way, right? We were very much visual in our conception of reading. But if you think of people in the first century, most of them who encountered the biblical text encountered it by hearing it. And even those who were literate, probably much of the time or most of the time when they were reading in a communal context, they were reading it out loud, right? And so there wasn't really a sense of text existing without some sort of, you know, auditory oral realization. And and I think that point about different scripts is important too, right? Because you could represent a language in a million different ways, theoretically. You could represent in linguistic notation with the native script of language with a different script, but you couldn't do that with how you speak it or how you hear it. It has to be relatively consistent for it to make sense. And so, so yeah, yeah, I think that sums it up well. Are, are you, this is, sorry, this is a slight tangent. Are you familiar with uh, Marianne Wolf's uh, work? I'm not, no. Uh, so she um, really works on, um, mostly on dyslexia, but she um, works a lot on, or at least utilizes the literature on in the neuroscience um, field on reading. And what's happening inside of our brains, and I, it, it's pretty clear reading necessarily goes through phonology. So you can't, um, like, when you're reading, even if you're reading silently, the things that are activated in your brain are the same as it would be if you were speaking the words, right? Mm-hmm. And and people have noticed this that, um, you know, like the sub vocalization, um part of reading is a real thing so when i'm reading i'm actually you know kind of pronouncing the words in my head um but it 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 is actually the same like from if you do a brain scan on someone um as if they are saying the words a support for pronouncing being a necessary part of the reading process um i mean i think the question would be is like you know obviously what part of it and how does that work and all that stuff very much lends itself to your kind of thesis in that statement. How you figure out how these things were pronounced, because I think that's one of the things that most people will not um, know intuitively how to do that, because that's one of the big things, right? It's like we have these texts, um, but we don't have 
anyone that can say them in the way that they would have said them. So, and this is where, you know, I, I know we're, we're kind of just, I mean, and I'll do this throughout, just jumping back and forth between the big book and the small book. Mm. I mean, you're going through each of the sounds and you are showing, hey, this is how it was pronounced. So can you just give us, you know, again, a general overview? How do you figure out how to um, pronounce these based on the data that we have? Yeah. So, and I'd start off answering that by mentioning that there's a lot of modern sort of, uh, I don't know, academic literary infrastructure that we kind of have to remember didn't exist in ancient times the way it does today. Probably the past five, six centuries of, of, um, time have, uh, been really given to a lot more standardization of things than existed in the past, especially since the printing press in the 15th century and widespread use of media and scientific standardization. I mean, even if you just go back a couple of centuries in England and you go from village and town to town, you find that they have different weights and measures, right? We find ancient uh, texts, uh, Epiphanius, right? Wrote a whole book just about weights and measures, comparing different societies and cultures, how they do weights, all sorts of things in ancient times were not standardized the way they were today. And certainly didn't have this conception of that's correct and that's incorrect, like it was today with as many things. A lot was much more functional and practical. So with all of that as a background, uh, the main methodology for determining how an ancient language was pronounced is based on spelling interchanges. And by interchanges, I could more colloquially and less objectively say spelling mistakes. Right. And, and a good analogy for this would be if you are watching a young child learn to read and write and you don't constantly correct them, right? They know the language, they're speaking the language, and they're writing a word like love, right? They might write it L-U-V, right? And that's not incorrect, right? To say it's incorrect is just, uh, you know, imposing some sort of spelling standard on it. What they're doing is they're using letters with their sounds to uh, make uh, a word. Or if you write the word tough as T-U-F-F, right? That's also not necessarily wrong. It's just giving you a different way of spelling it if, if you're being kind of a bit objective about it. But if somebody were to find those um, writings, you know, centuries from now, they could look at them and say, oh, okay, I see this isn't normally what we find, but I see that this person wrote love, L-U-V, and this person wrote tough, T-U-F-F. But most of the time in all these books and other writings, I see that it's written T-O-U-G-H for tough or L-O-V-E for love. And so when they see that, then they could, in each of those words, make a few conclusions. They could say, oh, okay, in the word tough, what's sort of standardly written as G-H in this context probably had the same sound as F-F, or what's written as O-U had the same sound as U in a context like this. And these sort of spelling interchanges, these spelling variants, you know, can give you a lot of information and that's not, I mean, that's the basic concept, but what's really important when dealing with ancient languages is not to just identify a spelling variant in an ancient inscription and then say, oh, of course, so that means they were pronouncing this as this. You have to be very careful and document every time it happens, every time it doesn't happen, the environment in which it happens, and then map that all out statistically over time, right? Because I think what you'll find is, is th there's often a, 
uh, a real quick jump to conclusions when people are talking about these things. Oh, here's this interchange, so it must have been like this. But you got to be very careful to document all of that and map it over many centuries so that then you can say, okay, in this century, uh, so if you look at a word like um, in Greek, kite, uh, right? Kappa, uh, epsilon, yota, tav, alpha, yota, which in kind of more traditional pronunciations would be ketai, right? Like lies or is found. It's often used in funerary inscriptions. Uh, if you find epsilon yota in the beginning, just written plainly as a yota, uh, you can conclude, okay, so what maybe way, way, way back when, like super early classical Greek was A is now E. And you can kind of make these sort of an alpha yota, which once was I is now E. You can make those conclusions by seeing the spelling interchanges, but specifically documenting over the time. So you say, okay, maybe in this century, this interchange happens 2% of the time. And then the next century, 10%. And then the next century, 30%. And so then you can see it grow and become more prevalent. And those changes by century, and then sometimes by region too, help you really map out and, and have a good idea what's going on. Because then you're not just looking at one spelling interchange, but you're looking at you know hundreds or thousands of examples, and then tens of thousands of, of examples where it's spelled the normal way. And that kind of distribution statistics really helps map out with with a, you know a, a, rel- a good deal of precision. So, like you look at, let's just you take Philo, right? Mm-hmm. And you look at the amount of times that he makes spelling mistakes it's probably very few compared to what you would find in other, you know, documents that are written by people that are just don't have as good a Greek, right? I mean, that would be my assumption. How does this relate to the actual documents and sources that you're, you are looking at? Um, are you, are you necessarily looking for, because again, going back to your example, you know, if you were to find all the mistakes of love, right? Um, you just wouldn't find it in some corpora. And then if you go to a third grade class, it's going to be everywhere. Right. Um, So, so what, how do you use that in order to establish these things? And um, how do the like actual sources play in? Yeah. The, the question of sort of the register or training of the scribe behind a particular document is really important. And actually if you read this, this stuff I get into a lot more in the large book, uh, it can actually help you map out the sort of registers of language that coexisted in some cases. And this is especially relevant in the first and second century, because this really is a, a really important transition time in Greek where you see a, a system with, you know, I'll, I'll get into this, you know, it's much more in, in detail in the book, but I'll just mention it quickly, where you go from a system with length and pitch accent to a system without length and kind of more stress accent, but that's really a key time in that transition. But the um, the register of a text is important because it's not, I mean, what you would expect that the more professional scribes, right? And, and the difference would be, you know, somebody writing a receipt for a sale on an ostracon on a piece of pottery broken or, you know, a small letter to a friend or something like that, or, a funerary inscription where it's really just the name and it says here lies, you know, um, uh, you know, Jonathan, son of Yosef or something like that, where somebody writes something very simple like that. Those can have a wide variety of scribes that write them. Something more complex like a poem or something maybe commissioned by the ruling administration, like a monument or uh, a building dedication, depending on the context, can often uh, be written by a much more professional scribe. 
And so as you would expect, the professional scribes make less sort of spelling errors, we can call them, or, or spelling variants. But at the same time, there's also certain spelling interchanges that you will find more among the professional scribes because they were aware of a different register. And a really good example of that is in the Roman period, it became very popular to write a etymologically long yota, right? So way back in Greek history, we don't talk about it much now when we learn, but there were two yotas, right? There was a yota that was a long e and a yota that was a short e. And, uh, and so there was these differences. And so at, an, at, at the Roman period specifically, it becomes more popular to write this long yota, which was etymologically long, with an epsilon yota, right? So this was in innovation, right? It wasn't as common in earlier periods, like a word like, you know, uh, ginosko, ginosko, right? That has a long e in it. A word like e mation for garment, that has a long e in it. So in words like this, they would start, or nike for victory, they would start writing with epsilon yota. And the professional scribes tend to do things like this more, right? So they're more aware of this phenomenon and they're trying to, to use it and and expand it because it was apparently a popular scribal thing to do, possibly influenced from Roman Latin culture at the time. And so you can actually see differences between the lower levels, kind of funerary inscriptions and the higher level. But in terms of privileging, generally, yes, it, it would privilege the lower level, less trained scribes for giving us most of the material. There aren't too many examples where you can say, oh, yeah, the, the professionals are doing a different type of mistake or a different type of interchange. And that gives us insight into the register. Those are more, more few. But there are uh, many, many most examples that of, of the material is going to be from lower register uh, material when it when it comes through. So so what do you conclude from that example? I could see a number of different potential conclusions um, like, you know, Ginosco. It's like, OK, if you have the initial Iota become Epsilon Iota in its written form, does that tell us that? some of those people were actually pronouncing it differently or are they saying, Hey, we want to pronounce this differently or we should be pronouncing this differently. I mean, what, what, what do you kind of conclude from that? Uh, generally all of the above. And then you have to work out exactly how it takes shape in a particular context. So if you think of that particular example, I think there's a lot of evidence that between, let's say the year one and the year 200 over those 200 years, you see a lot of change where at the beginning, and again, this differs by region, it happened earlier in other regions, but in Judea, Palestine, by the first century, you probably have a lot of people still speaking with long and short vowels. And then a lot of people also still uh, who have already innovated and are speaking with kind of a generalized uh, neutral length vowel system. And those two registers probably coexist for a lot of the first century. And then in the second century, that the register that has length is probably slowly getting relegated to just a, you know, a minority of the population and or an elevated register for certain things like speeches and poetry. And, and you see that, you see that in uh, Asia Minor, somebody ridicules a, a, a rhetor for not being able to get the lengths right, right? Mm -hmm. But he's still, you know, seen as somebody who gives good public speeches, he's just not getting the lengths right. And so there's this idea, this is something you should be doing, but you're not quite able to do it. You also see um the Atticist authors uh, uh the Atticist come up with a um 
uh, lexica and they talk about length and they're like, okay, this is what we should be. And so once you start to get these prescriptive works, you realize, okay, there's a register that they're going for. It's, you know, second, third century, but the, it's not innate, innate to them anymore. And so I think that's, that shows that there's kind of these layers and, uh, but at the same time, when you get earlier, there are some mistakes that, or spelling interchanges that seem to indicate, oh, okay, this might mean he was just pronouncing this longer. And a good example of that is where stressed syllables tend to, in, at a certain period early in the first century, stressed syllables tend to interchange with long vocalic graphemes like eta or epsilon yorta or omega, when it would be a similar quality. And unstressed tend to go the other way, right? So in a stressed syllable, you'd be more likely to replace omicron with omega or epsilon with eta. And then the reverse, and unstressed, more likely to replace omega with omicron. And so that shows that this isn't necessarily trying to do a register. It's just trying to record what they are hearing. And so it, it's actually a kind of a key piece of evidence to show that they were going more from a pitch to kind of a stress-based accent system where the stress syllable would have a longer length. So there's a lot of different factors here with with that sort of example of the length one and the Yunosko thing. Sometimes it's register. Sometimes it's their native speech, uh, but eventually it's very clearly registering, you know, kind of second, third century. Well, let me just insert a little thing explanation here. So the difference between pitch accent and stress accent, um, just really quickly, I mean, pitch, right, is um, where the stressed syllable changes in pitch, but not in length, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas stress would change in um, length and usually pitch as well, or often pitch as well. Um, But so like in, in English, we have a stress accent system and not a pitch accent system so you know you would pronounce stressed syllables longer you would hold that vowel for longer whereas in you know um greek originally it was pitch so you know the circumflex accent is actually pronounced differently than the acute um in pitch not in length people are not gonna get everything um, yeah, so and one, so, of the, one of the reasons that is important is especially for the register question is because Greek poetry is so based on a pitch accent where the lengths are relevant for the metrics, which is why you could see that other pronunciation system sticking around a good long time, even after uh, the colloquial kind of everyday pronunciation had progressed to a kind of a non-length, non-pitch accent. But but even these, they can even coexist too, and pitch accent can stay around in kind of a partial form, be combined with stress accent too. So I can't, you know, I'm not saying it was like a just flipping a page on a book and is now gone or something, but uh, kind of a gradual shift. Yeah. I mean, and, and I think that's part of the whole difficulty with these kinds of questions. It's like they didn't wake up one day and say, Hey, I think I'm going to switch things up and go from, you know, pitch to stress. Now it's yeah, like, it, it's just, it, it's very, very hard to tell like, you know, how widespread it was, who was doing what, mm-hmm. when were they doing it? Right. I mean, mm-hmm. would, would a scribe have talked the same way on the street as they would have talked when reading a text, right? Mm-hmm. You know, a poem, right? I mean, we just we just don't know those questions. Um, there is there is some interesting evidence in in transcription of Latin, actually. So this is relevant for Latin, but I think it shows the principle. If you compare, and we're going to Egypt now, so out of the region I mainly dealt with, but if you compare school texts in which people are learning to speak Latin and they're writing Latin in Greek letters. And then you compare just general um, Latin loan words in Greek in kind of other papyri that aren't in a school context. What you'll find is that the sound changes that we know happened eventually in Latin happen first in the loan words in general Greek papyri and letters, and then happen two or three centuries later in the school text, right? Mm-hmm. So in Latin, 
there was a time where a w sound there, u, v, eventually would become a v and then a v. And what you find is that kind of Roman period, you already start to see that happening in the loanwords and papyri, um, in loanwords and Greek um, papyri. But in the school text, that doesn't actually happen until like the third, fourth century Byzantine period as much. And so you see, okay, so this shows that in the school, they were being careful in their teaching material to maintain the older pronunciation a little bit longer. Now, eventually it goes in that too, and it changes, but it holds off for about two or three centuries in the actual material they were using to teach the language. So there is some evidence that they kind of, um, the everyday pronunciation differed from sort of the school. Well, here you're now learning to be a scribe or you're learning language pronunciation. So so really, for our purposes, that would be evidence um, in my mind that most likely the New Testament, if it was to be read, would be read at a slightly higher register, right? Because it's something that's being read, it's a literary document, not the same as what they might have spoken on the street. Of course, we just we just don't know, right? But if you were to read it, especially if you were someone that was, you were trained, right? Um, in a school where you ta- were taught these distinctions, you would have most likely, you know, distinguished length and whatever if if it hadn't already trickled down to you know the whole system by that point is that fair to say it's i mean it seems plausible um there's a lot of questions i have about it and this is kind of drifting a bit out of my area of expertise because i think it it touches on you know the context for sort of communal reading if we're talking about the new testament right the communities and sort of what it meant to read a text in a church i mean one question I would love to have a very detailed answer on, what does it mean when Paul sent a letter to a church and then it was read in the church? What did that look like, right? Did they mm-hmm. gather around in the reading community? Did they pass around and read in small groups, one, you know, five at a time as they could, you know, throughout the city? You know, I'm not sure. And I think, you know, the there were a lot of people who were literate but weren't scribes, right? And so the uh, learning to read required much less than learning to be an actual scribe and yet i'm not sure who would be called upon to read in any given context so i think there's a lot of questions around i mean it seems plausible but a lot of things that i that i i personally don't know the answer to that i think would affect how exactly that takes shape yeah and well i think there's you know again it's i can imagine too a fair amount of just flexibility right like if you had a if you had a scribe that happened to be the one reading it then Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, and you would yeah, think yeah. too that the 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 ones reading would probably be the better ones at reading, right? Yeah, yeah, um, would yeah. probably be the the higher, you know, more educated ones. Um, and and I, I would just, you know, again, I would just guess, right? That mm-hmm. that if if they had learned that system, um, mm-hmm. they would most likely use it in that sort of context. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, I mean, again, it's just a that's just a guess. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I and I guess this brings us to I know I'm I'm like getting outside of my notes here, but this is I no, am very interested in in this uh, question now. So how does this relate to your system? So what system are you constructing for people to pronounce in New Testament Greek? Is it the more colloquial system, a higher register system, somewhere in between? And and you know how do you how did you get to that system to begin with? More formal scribes, you might come up with a different system. Um, than if you were to look at the papyri and whatever other documents where you see a lot of more spelling mistakes. Yeah, yeah. So and this and this would be a one thing where there's a real big difference between the big volume and the small volume, right? Because when we say the system I prescribe, it's 
the small volume. The big volume is just giving you all the data and the changes and the analysis over time. But what I prescribe in the small volume in terms of like, okay, this would be a good pronunciation to adopt is basically if you consider what kind of the more colloquial pronunciation of the first century would be and sort of, or you could describe it in a different way, or what things, what changes we know were already going on in the first century, let's just take them to their uh, conclusion, right? Because like I said, there's a lot of changes going on in the first century, a lot of register differences, and then a lot of those would be complete by the second century in, in the speech of most. And so that's sort of what what I'm trying to, to go for uh, is a system that reflects that kind of more colloquial, common pronunciation or the outcome of changes that were kind of in flux in the first century and would become kind of more consistent by the end of the second century. And there's there's a number of reasons for that. I mean, you could you could shoot for the more literary sort of elevated register pronunciation. However, I think pedagogically it makes more sense to do what people were speaking in, because you know, when I think of how I teach Greek, I teach it as a language that people can converse in and speak in and um, and really, you know, take on as a full language. And nobody does that as a literary thing first off, right? And I think, from what I understand, you, it's, you guys share a lot of that with, with Biblingo, right? Where it's like, let's mm. get into this as language, real language that we're using. We're doing all sorts of hearing, writing, reading, all that stuff. And, and so I think uh, pedagogically, it makes more sense to start with that. And then, you know, I'm certainly not opposed to somebody then eventually as they progress in the studies, then learning different systems and, you know, taking on a, a system with length, but pedagogically it made more sense to do that one. Um, and also that, that produces a, a nice bridge with modern Greek as well. Uh, actually, I mean, in this, in this volume, I do note uh, like throughout it, you could use this as a guide to, to, to use a mo modern pronunciation as well, because I often know, okay, here's one place where if you're doing modern Greek, you can do it like this. And this is maybe, you know, some minority communities that already done this change in the first century and uh, historically, too. So I, I don't necessarily preclude that either. I think both are, are, are good systems. Uh, but yeah, I prefer uh, for pedagogical reasons what I call the common pronunciation rather than a more elevated sort of high register one, especially because we know that that required a lot of training in ancient times. It's certainly not something that, you know, uh, most readers of the New Testament throughout history would have been using. Yeah. So that, that, that's really interesting. First century is really a transition period. Mm -hmm. um, and so there are these changes happening in the system. And and you basically say, OK, well, let's just go like um, make these changes, you know, more widespread. We know that they will be, become widespread. Mm -hmm. So let's say if you're reading the text in um, the second or third century, right? Then this is probably how you would have pronounced it. But you could have, you know, also gone back a century, right? And yeah. said, okay, you know, how how are they using it first, second century BC, right? Mm. And how, like, um, how would they have read it in that context? And that might have reflected the more literary register yeah, yeah. that that was at least still in some populations in first century. Is that kind of... Oh, yeah. Yeah, and even and I think there were, there were certainly populations in the first century that had things like length and pitch, and it wasn't an elevated register. It was just their pronunciation right. still. And that's why I say it's such a transition period because you have so much diversity attested within the first century where some you know really good scribes even seem to be confusing length, whereas others seem to be really controlling it well. So there's all sorts of um, 
diversity in the first century. But yeah, I, I think even native normal vernacular speech even had length for some in, in the first century. So are you familiar with the the police um pronunciation in, I assume you are and like what what uh Christoph's reconstruction is basically? I think so. Um I mean I I couldn't, you know, paint it all out in the chart and be 100% sure of it, but I think I mean I know Christoph he's great. Uh, I actually was with him in Greece uh, a few months ago and uh he's great and what he's done is amazing. Um and I think I'm familiar with that pronunciation and um yes yeah generally so he he calls it early high koine right Mm -hmm. basically the more literary register i mean i like you are supposed to um distinguish length but because Mm -hmm. a lot of the people don't come from languages where they do distinguish length you don't hear it (laughs) but in that system right i mean so i guess i'm asking your opinion about the system Mm -hmm. because it is basically supposed to be a reconstructed higher register of you know, earlier Koine, mm. um, that, you know, would be how you would have, let's say, read the Septuagint when it was mm. translated, right? At, yeah, at the yeah. very least, you know, we, we could say that before those other changes, changes started to take place. Do you, I mean, do you have any thoughts on that system? I, I don't know how familiar you are with it, like I said, but, you know, on using that system pedagogically, I mean, in, so in Biblingo, we offer both. We basically say like, mm. here, take your pick, right? I mean, and that's, that's the one that I learned to speak because I was, I did my spoken Greek with with Christoph and some with um you know I've I've like been around enough BLC people to uh <laughs> learn how to like yeah. interpret it but I always have to like yeah. like yeah. think really hard yeah, you know sure. um anyway so do you have any thoughts on your use of that system within the classroom and what police is doing Yeah so I think the degree to which I'm familiar with that system it seems that it reflects kind of there are some American Erasmian pronunciations that are uh, quite distant. And so I, it's not that, right? Uh, Christoph's is, if somebody maintained the length, yeah, I think it would be quite close historically to what I would consider kind of a higher register, or like you said, you know, going back a couple centuries, kind of more the Septuagint. But yeah, to be consistent and for it to be coherent, you would want length, right? So if you're doing the diphthong alpha yota as I, you would also want a length distinction, not just between the graphemes that, show length, but also between things like short yota and long yota, which means you need to know which yotas are which. And that's kind of also, I think, another pedagogical reason why uh, it's it's a bit, you know, I think preferable to use a, a the more common system, because otherwise you got to, you know, for, for it to be a coherent system, you have to make sure the students know which yotas are long and which are short. And the same with alphas, which alphas are long and which are short. And actually, I think, um, so if you know Luke Ranieri, Mm-hmm. Uh, he goes by Plymouthy on YouTube. He's developed a pronunciation system, and he'll actually mark out all the mac mac macra, I guess, like macrons in um, in the uh, in the text that he does audiobooks of. I think I, I haven't looked in a while, but uh, but he he does because he does maintain a system that is what I would call the kind of more elevated register. Once we're getting to the second or third century, but like I said, it's a transition period, so you could even just call it the more conservative system, whereas mine's the more innovative system of that kind of time period because both coexisted in different contexts, even among native kind of vernacular speech. And he does a really good job with the length. He maintains it very carefully. And so, yeah, that, that I think is totally pedagogically viable. And so with Christoph Rico's, I would say uh, certainly, and for it to be completely coherent, just make sure you're maintaining those length distinctions. Although you could, I mean, the sort of shift of 
So like with that example, alpha yota, a diphthong, because these, the length and the diphthongs often kind of go at roughly a, a similar period. From the first century, you have I then becoming something like I and then E, E, and then E eventually without length. So where it goes from I to E over that period. And so you could maybe say that there was kind of in some sort of transition, a point where length is breaking down and there was still kind of something of the diphthong maybe in some, but I would say generally that system is coherent and historical as long as length is maintained. Uh, but even if it's, even if length isn't maintained, it's still, I mean, I wouldn't say it's a bad system because it's one that, like there are some American Rasmian systems that just aren't a coherent phonology, I think, and are really just like a spelling memorization conglomeration of sounds like you can't call it a coherent linguistic language phonology because there's just it just doesn't really it's just to remember spelling basically whereas like kind of a more uh even if it's without length Christoph Rico's I think is kind of phonology makes sense and and uh with that issue of length this is pretty close to historical things of that kind of more elevated register or more conservative pronunciation yeah. Well, it's, it, it's interesting, too, because, you know, it's, it actually represents a pretty good reflection in some ways of, of first century, because it's like, well, they're supposed to be length, but because we have non-native speakers, sometimes they don't put it in, yeah. right? And that's really what we have um, in the yeah. linguistic environment in, you yeah. know, Palestine in the first century. It's like, well, you know, if you come from a language where you don't have length, like, you might say anthropos rather than an anthropos right i mean it's just like and then yeah. and then that breaks down so i realize people are maybe someone will have the book as they're listening example from uh uh how uh from caesarea in in asia minor uh philostratus is talking about him and he says even though he had attained so this is on page 757 in the large book right just to illustrate the kind of differences in registers and people not getting the lengths right he says even though he had attained to much of the excellencies of Herodes, who was his teacher in rhetoric, and especially the ability to orate extemporaneously, he would deliver his speeches with coarse accent, even as is customary for the Cappadocians on one hand, on one hand, running together the consonant sounds, and on the other hand, shortening long syllables and lengthening short syllables, right? And so there you see even a, you know, somebody who was trained in rhetoric in the second century in Athens is getting these lengths wrong, right? So he would have been clearly quite accomplished in Greek, but he was still not quite getting the length right. So I think there was definitely a large diversity of pronunciations and competencies with all of these things in, in the Roman period. Yeah, that's that's actually a, that is a fantastic uh, text for what you're doing. My pronunciation, uh, Luke Ranieri's, Gustav Rico's, like, you put all those in the first century, second century, I think they're all going to fit, kind of, you know. So. Yeah. Yeah. If only we had that same sort of description for one of Paul's letters read in the synagogue, it would just be, yeah. you know, yeah. gold. Okay. So tell us, tell us about Erasmus's system, um, the Erasmian system, how it's used and why it's not the best system in your opinion to adopt. So I think Erasmus's system, it, the very, you know, you'll see throughout my books, well, mainly in the short one where I deal with Erasmian more, I constantly put the word Erasmian in quotes because I'm not really sure what I mean. I'm not sure what people mean. Let's just realize we always need to define this term because if you look at sort of the reconstruction uh, that Barnard suggests based on Erasmus's fable for the phonology, right, uh, you know, it's it's very bizarre. Nobody uses it today based on what was kind of put forward in the fable. You have things like alpha, ypsilon, which, okay, historically, people might do more like ow or, um, you know, in line as av or af, 
push someone in between. Like he has something like Ayi or, you know, it's, it's not even like it's taking it as like one letter segment at a time and all of that. But in kind of the subsequent centuries as Erasmian population gained prevalence in sort of the 16, uh, 1600s, 1700s and became used in more and more universities across Europe, then it kind of got a little bit more stability. But even today, I think what's uh, often as much as Erasmian is lauded for being its main facility as well. One, it's already in use, and two, it helps us remember the spelling. I don't think people take into account how different Erasmian is in different countries. Germany, for example, in German Erasmian, the word, you know, the Greek god Zeus, what I would say is Zeus, modern Greek Zeus, or, you know, classical Zeus, something like that. In German, it's Zeus, right? In French, it's Zeus. In Italian, it's Zeus. And so we have a variety in Erasmian anyways, and then we just need to interact with more and more Greek scholars from different countries to realize, okay, maybe Erasmian isn't so good for remembering spelling after all. And so I think one of the things that uh, makes Erasmian actually problematic is because, well, one, it's based on Erasmus's fable, which was kind of, you know, it was interesting at its time, but it's certainly not historically accurate or based on the evidence that we have now. But it then became its own thing in all sorts of different countries from Europe, different countries in Europe to America and, and all of that. And, and it's particular instantiation in America, like the ones where you will actually pronounce the different vowels in the word like logos, logos as different, even though they're both Omicron. That system, those that generally are in line with that, don't usually represent a coherent phonology that you could actually find in a language. So that by itself is a good reason to, um, not to use it, but I've forgotten the question. Now. I've just started talking about different Erasmians in different countries. What was the question? Explain what the Erasmian system is and and why it's not the best system to use. Which which basically is what you what you did. Oh, okay. So that that was one thing that I thought was very interesting when I when I read that section in the little book. Erasmian Erasmian is not this is not really in use at all today, <laughs> uh, and I think people don't yeah, yeah. really realize that. And and I so I have you know so it, again in Biblingo we offer an, an Erasmian pronunciation. We basically have four, right? The, you know, BLC system, poly system, Erasmian, and uh, modern. When I was thinking through, you know, and coming up with all the IPA symbols for Erasmian, those of you who don't know, IPA is just basically an alphabet that was created to um, give us a way to describe or symbolize the sounds in any language. So I, I realized that uh, there is no no good system right like there is there's actually not a system it varies by i mean particularly what you said by region and so i it there is not an erasmus system there is an american erasmian system right and that's different from the german erasmian system yeah. which which again is is not bad if you are only living in america right yeah. um and only interacting with people in america but like that's not the case anymore right i mean it might have been the case 200 years yeah. ago not anymore and so I mean, that is an important point, right? Like if you are doing this for scholarship, know that you will be understood by Americans, right? Um, but it will be much harder for Germans to understand your Greek, right? And again, if you do use the reconstructions, it's not widespread enough at this point that no one will understand you. It's certainly a push in the right direction in terms of, you know, where the scholarly field needs to go. Um, like it used to be the case where, you know, because people, everyone knew Latin, right? And they could like converse with one another in a scholarly, um, you know, context in Latin. And, you know, we could do the same in Greek as long as we, 
at least have some sort of pronunciation that people are using consistently across the board, mm-hmm. um, which is just not what we have right now. That being said, um, I do think that our Greek should be good enough to where we can understand different pronunciation systems. Yeah. People in your area right now in England, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, pretty well, even though they don't pronounce everything the way that I do. Um, right. and I, I assume that you are, you are doing okay over there as well with your <laughs> English. This kind of leads us to a last, the last few questions. I know we've kind of, uh, been all, all over the place here, but, and you mentioned some drawbacks to the Erasmian system. What does this do for a learner of biblical Greek, you know, to adopt your system? Like, wh- why is it better than, than Erasmian from a, a second language acquisition perspective? Yeah. So, uh, and this people find kind of uh, a number of answers that, you know, I'll give some of them now at the end of this book in the, the little book, uh, chapter five, right? I talk about, you know, does pronunciation really matter about vocabulary acquisition retention about reading, you know, people will say it sounds just more like real language and then relevance for Irie inscriptions, textual criticism and connection with modern Greek. There's a number of things I go into. I can't get into all of them now. But in terms of the advantages, I think a lot of this starts with the principle that we have to ask, what are we actually trying to learn, right? Are we trying to learn the language or are we just trying to learn how to spell, right? And how to spell in a certain way even, which for what it's worth, wasn't even the way they tended to spell in the first century. If you look at dictionaries and look at the way that Greek spelling is standardized for us through lexica and material, it is not actually how it was most common or what was popular among scribes in the first century. It, it has under the same kind of atticist wave of the late Roman, early Byzantine period that we see in ancient times has affected modern lexicon Greek learning materials. So the standardization we've been using isn't one that applies to the first century. It's of the Byzantine period. But that's another topic for another day. But, <laughs> uh, but if we're talking about what is a language, right? You know, we wouldn't, we wouldn't go into, say, a modern Arabic or Hebrew or German class and say, you know, hey, does it really matter how I pronounce the words? You know, the teacher would be like, well, what do you mean? Like, we're, we're all going to be talking and interacting with each other. Like, what else, what are you going to do? Are you going to invent your own pronunciation? And and I think understanding also that language is like building blocks, right? You know, the sounds, the basic sounds, phonetics of the language help to form the phonemes. The phonemes and the phonology helps to form the morphology and how do you inflect verbs and word forms and adjectives and plurals and all that. And then that morphology informs the relationship between words and the syntax and the grammar. And so we would never look at another kind of category. We wouldn't look at syntax and say, well, it'll be easier to remember syntax if we assume that middle verbs just always do one thing in, 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 in verbal syntax, you know, we'd be like, why would we ever, you know, use a convention that isn't accurate for the language just to make it easier to remember in syntax would be unthinkable. Mm -hmm. So, Doing that for phonology, sure, there's far less stakes in terms of of what we might get wrong because phonology isn't, you know, slight differences in phonology aren't going to make the most uh, jarring differences in meaning most of the time, but it is still part of the language and they all work together. So that would be kind of the first thing is like if we're really learning this as a language, then let's treat it as a language so that we're going to have the same sort of, because if we're dealing with, you know, phonology as the opposition between sounds to make meaning, then let's try to make sure the way we understand meaning is the same as the way the original authors and hearers of the text did. And so that's kind of the first big thing is like, let's just do what we're doing really well, right? If we want to really learn the language, then let's try to learn the language as close as to whatever the original hearers and authors of it 
we're experiencing so that the differences in meaning hit us the same way. Because there will be places where uh, the differences in pronunciation will make uh, the way we interpret certain forms and hear certain forms different. Uh, and, and so I think that uh, a lot of that, though, depends on how, how someone learns a language, right? When someone learns language as a living language, as a real language, all of these differences are going to be a lot more apparent, right? If someone's only ever encountering it as something written, then a pronunciation system that just helps them remember how it's written seems a lot more beneficial. Uh, but I would say that would be kind of the big thing. A couple, a couple other things are, you know, in terms of just second literature on second language acquisition and vocabulary retention, you know, it, it shows that pronunciation is really a key component of learning new vocabulary and careful attention to pronunciation is, and you know, this isn't necessarily implying you should use one particular system, but from my experience, and this spans multiple continents, you know, multiple different contexts of undergraduate and grad school and all of that. I have found that those, and again, this is totally anecdotal, I admit it, but I think anyone who starts paying attention to this will see the same thing, that those classrooms that use Erasmian pronunciation, word stress is just not uh, kept, like it's just not... Um, kept very faithfully. You can pronounce the word one way, uh, stress it one way one time, stress it differently another time, because everyone's going to the written. The stress just isn't very important. Some classrooms that use Rasmian don't do this, I'll admit that, but I would say most that I've been in don't care about word stress very much in terms of actually speaking it and hearing it, and that's really detrimental to vocabulary retention, right? If you stress a word differently when you hear it different times, that's really bad for remembering the word, because you don't get this sort of... Uh, very stable, solid form of the word that you can conceive of in your mind for remembering it. But those who use kind of historical, reconstructed, or even a modern Greek, they tend to be much more careful about word stress. And that by itself, because you're treating it that way as a real language with real word stress, this word always is stressed on the syllable, the vocabulary retention is just better. So there's things like that. And the fact that, like I mentioned, some American or Aspen pronunciations aren't a coherent phonology, like they really are just a spelling, remembering uh, convention, uh, they they don't sit in your mind the way a real language does. It's I'm learning this as a convention to talk about what's spelled on the page. It's not going to sit in your mind like something that that could actually be used as a real language and cohere with itself in terms of a phonology. I mean, there's a bit more linguistic detail about that argument in, in the book. Uh, and then you know, it's 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 also very relevant for just ancient inscriptions, uh, textual criticism, and all sorts of things like that. But yeah, those are just a few things. People can read more about that in chapter five of the of the little book. Yeah, so is is it fair to to say, basically, you should be, in your view, picking some sort of historical reconstruction, um, but if you don't, you should do, if you pick Erasmian, whatever, you know, Erasmian variant you want, um, you should at least be doing that well, <laughs> like consistently and, you know, in terms of just for learning the language is that yeah, in terms of learning the language i would say i mean there i don't want to call anything out by name but there are certain american raspian systems which actually aren't a coherent phonology of the language i don't think there's any benefit into choosing that if you have any choice in the matter don't do that because all you're going to be doing then is preventing yourself from ever getting the real language in your head but if you're using kind of a more traditional kind of international raspian right which doesn't have some of these uh like like if Omicron always has the same sound, for example, 
um, that sort of harassment, and that's fine. Just do it well and get the stress right. Getting the stress right, treat it like a real language in terms of, you know, you have to stress it where the stress is. I can't suddenly, um, I can't suddenly start speaking <laughs> English. You know, it doesn't work. You can't do that, you know, yeah. with a different stress. And so make sure you're treating it like, uh, like you're not just relying on what's written. Uh, so yeah, and, and make it, and that's fine with kind of the more traditional international sort of Erasmians that, you know, I've used in some of my education and, and so forth. Ideally, you know, and, and some people aren't going to have a, have a choice, right? They're going to be in a right, class right, and right. say, this is what you need to do, you know? Yeah, no, that's true. That's true. And, uh, and then, you know, there's ideally you'd have some historical, uh, pronunciation that, you know, replicates the same type of contrast that the ancients were we're hearing and using, but even again with that, there's a lot of diversity. So there might be more than one system that can fit that. And that's fine. And that's actually really fun. I mean, I have a group that I go to uh, Greece with every year now, two years going, I mean, that I meet up with there as, as part of a, uh, there's an organization in Greek, that does uh, uh, ancient Greek as a living language for native Greeks mainly. And so they use the modern Greek pronunciation. And so when I'm there, I sometimes shift to modern Greek when I'm speaking ancient Greek. You know, I gave a speech there in ancient Greek and modern Greek pronunciation. And yet there's other people who have more Erasmian type pronunciations. And we speak with each other in ancient Greek. Like all of this diversity, I think, is, you know, uh, quite nice. And it, and it reflects a lot of what was going on in the ancient world, too. Although I will say when they use kind of a more Erasmian, they're using kind of the international version of it where Omicron is always O and it is coherent. Right. And so. Uh, that that's fine and yeah a lot of diversity there but yeah get the stress right treat it like a language where it's not just for spelling and yeah 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 that's great you know, if you ask someone on the street what language did jesus speak 95 percent of them or more will say aramaic and and they'll say so unhesitatingly and not thinking that there are any other options basically <laughs> what language would jesus and his disciples have spoken and um how would they have been used because i think that's a Another question, right? It's the, the question is not just, you know, okay, was Jesus able to speak Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic? Um, yeah. But, you know, would he have been able? And, and if so, how might he have used that in his life? Let me first start off by saying that this is, I mean, this is something I have some insight on based on my work, you know, reading thousands of inscriptions and all that. Uh, but it's not, this question is not, within my main expertise so before i give my kind of you know take on it i'd say there are some good books on it that people can go to there's um randall booth and, and uh steve notley's edited volume the language environment of first century judea there's uh catherine hetzer's uh volume jewish literacy in roman palestine right that touches mainly on literacy but it also has a lot of relevance for this question and then there's also a Michael Wise language and literacy in Roman Judea study of the Bar documents. Those would be great places to go to for kind of getting at this question. But in short, I mean, I can say what we see in the epigraphic record and, and in papyri and all of that as if you look at, say, funerary inscriptions, right, which is a lot of, uh, you know, if you're if you're looking at like a legal contract of papyrus or something like that, that you know, generally requires a more educated scribe, right? Because you're talking about you know, three, 500 word document maybe that has a lot of careful language and somebody's going to use it to protect their property or, you know, give away somebody in marriage. So it has to be very good, you know, in certain formula, people have to be very well trained to do something like that. 
uh, that, you know, it's going to take a higher educated scribe to do that. So that's not necessarily going to be as reflective of kind of daily language use. But if you look at funerary inscriptions, you often get people from, you know, it could be a scribe, but it could also just be, oh, we know someone in our family who does know how to write a bit. So we'll get that person and they'll, you know, write this funerary inscription, which what can be one word. It can just be the name or it can be five to 10 words, the name, the profession, the family relation, things like that. So with funerary inscriptions, you know, we have thousands and thousands of these, um, or in, in Judea Palestine, thousands, I should say, hundreds of thousands. Um, and you find them in all languages. You find them in Greek, you find them in Aramaic, you find them in Hebrew. And so, I mean, I have no doubt in my mind that in the first century, all three of these languages were prevalent to some degree. And then you just have to say, what were the contexts, right? So, I mean, anyone who says that Hebrew wasn't spoken in the first century, I think there's plenty of evidence that there was, uh, you know, at least some context where people were speaking Hebrew and certain portions of the population that were still speaking Hebrew. Uh, Aramaic is certainly very prevalent. And then Greek, we probably have more Greek inscriptions than either of the other languages, actually, in terms of this, uh, this period, I think. In, in funerary them. inscriptions? In anything. Um, okay. I think, I mean, I would have to look at it across the board, so don't quote me on this, but, uh, <laughs> because I just focused on the, on the Greek material, but, like, I mean, if you just look at, like, the, um, the CIIP volumes, the ones that give us most of the material, I mean, they have, like, uh, yeah, I mean, in, in most of the published volumes, we're talking 4,000. They just came out with Galilee, so add that to whatever, to add to additional inscriptions. But yeah, I mean, I think certainly in terms of the inscriptions, most inscriptions we have uh, over this long period, yeah, over the long period are probably in Greek. So I'd have to do an actual study of just the particular First Roman century. period distribution. But whether yeah. it's most or a huge proportion, a huge proportion of them are in Greek. And so I think it's hard to deny that Greek was really prevalent at the time, and yet we know very clearly, like, rabbis tended to tell parables in Hebrew rather than Aramaic, even if they were speaking Aramaic, and Aramaic was obviously very prevalent, and so the, they were all prevalent, and then I think you just have to, the question for scholars is just to kind of work out what were the contexts where we would have expected this and that, and some of that is based on, you know, just a lot of modern sociolinguistic literature where, you know, people uh, research the context for different language use and different language competencies in different spheres, like family versus religious institutions versus education versus work versus commerce, all of those things, depending on who you were with. And then, uh, yeah, any other evidence we can piece together. But my short answer is they were all quite prevalent. And then it's just about context. Yeah, that's interesting. The passage I think of is John mm -hmm. 3 um, for several reasons. One is, um, well, so J Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. Right. So Nicodemus is, is not a Hebrew or Aramaic name. Right. Um, and, and he's, you know, seems to be higher class. Um, and he, they're in, I believe they're in Jerusalem at this point. Um, but, but what's so interesting is that there's this play on words. Right. I mean, I think pretty clearly in the text with Anothen, right. Where you have like, is it either from above or again? Um, and it only works if, it, if they were talking in Greek, right? Mm -hmm. If they were talking in Hebrew or Aramaic, right? It, it obviously wouldn't work. So Calvin in his commentary says like, well, you know, Nicodemus understands this as again, and we know that Jesus was speaking Aramaic. Therefore, like that's what Jesus must have meant. It could not have been, you know, Jesus being 
saying you have to be born from above, which, you know, given that view, right? Like if Jesus has to be speaking Aramaic all the time, and that's the only language he knows, uh, then that makes sense. Uh, but the fact that we have, you know, the whole New Testament written in Greek, <laughs> right? I mean, and, you know, Greek names, even in Acts, right? Greek-speaking Jews are arguing with, you know, Semitic-speaking Jews, let's just say, just shows that it it's way more complex than just Aramaic. Yeah. Anyway, so I, I don't know if you have any other thoughts on that. I just, I, I wanted to pick your brain because, you know, you've combed through all the evidence, right? Um, that most people listening to this are not going to do. Um, so from your vantage point, it's, I mean, it's, it's, I, I did not know that. It's really interesting that at least a huge portion of these, uh, inscriptions are in Greek. I mean, I've, you know, seen some of these inscriptions in Greek, right? Cause I lived in Israel, but I haven't counted them all. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so they, I mean, it's, it's just, it's just very, very interesting. Anyway, do you have any more yeah, on, on yeah. that topic? I mean, retrojecting a lot of what we see later backwards. I mean, one of one thing I didn't mention yet that is really relevant here is language contact in terms of loan words. If you look at sort of Greek loan words in Mishnaic Hebrew, I mean, there's a ton, right? And so when you have a lot of Greek entering Hebrew of kind of this late Roman period or early Byzantine period, I mean, you know, presumably you can say, you know, earlier there was a... a a strong presence as well. I mean, there's, there's Aramaic, uh, with Greek in it in, in the Talmud. I think you have like an example. Somebody's in the marketplace and says, Mizabenat katalepta, right? You know, are you selling it katalepta and had just inserts a good thing in a marketplace phrase, right? This isn't like a highly technical term. This is something yeah. you, you'd say as you're buying at a market stall. So, I mean, again, that's a slightly later period, but I, I think it really shows just how prevalent it is. I think, who is it? The, I forget what, what, scholar was that argued based on kind of demographics where if you map out the cities where people were likely to have you know smaller places where people maybe speak aramaic or semitic languages hebrew um but then map it out compared with the urban centers where you have greek and so forth they're not like all in one place and the others are all in another like they're going to have to constantly cross paths in a normal life of trade and interaction and and so it, it makes sense that people uh, a lot of you know um semitic language speakers in the region would have also had to know at least some Greek to get by. And then, you know, their own specific education would determine which, you know, to what degree they knew, they knew Greek. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it's, I, it's a topic I would like to get into a lot more because uh, a lot comes into it. I mean, there's so many different strands of, of evidence that feeds into it, but yeah, it's definitely interesting. And I don't think it's as simple as people often make it. I agree with you there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, I, and I even think about, um, Jesus growing up in Nazareth, which is right next to Sephora's too, which mm -hmm. like yeah. just had, I mean, he had to have gone. I mean, there's just no way yeah, he yeah, didn't yeah. go to Sephora's. And if you go to Sephora's, like you, there, there's going to be a lot of Greek speakers there at the very yeah. least. Last question. Um, mm. what are you doing next? Is there anything left to be done? Are we just like done with Greek phonology now? I mean, you've written, huh. um, you know, a thousand pages on it. Um, so is, is there, is there anything left, um, to do in that? area and are you continuing to work on this or or what's next for you i i know i i know you're working on a hebrew project at the moment i don't know yeah. um how much time that's taking up yeah so since since i finished this most of my work has gone back to hebrew different hebrew reading traditions i'm helping um write the new big giant hebrew reference grammar um with the team led by professor jeffrey khan here in cambridge in terms of so there's a number of the hebrew projects i'm doing but in terms of greek phonology i mean no it's definitely not done with me i mean i think you know, one of the things about these books is it's 
I mean, people maybe aren't aware is how much has been done before me. I mean, there's a ton of other scholars who have done different regions. Uh, Leslie Threate for Attic Greek, Theo Dolson for Attic and Egyptian, Jinyak for Egyptian, um, Brikse for uh, uh, Anatolia. Um, some things in Italy. I mean, there's been stuff done all over the place. I think one of the things that I hope that my books do is one of the differences that you'll see between mine and a lot of the others is I've tried to give all the data to the reader. That's why it's so long, right? Like, I mean, if you look through this, you're going to find like pages where it's just the whole page is just listing spelling interchanges so that people can see, okay, he got this one wrong. I don't agree. Or this one is too fragmentary. And, you know, I expose myself to a bit more criticism by putting it all there, but I think it's beneficial for the reader to see it. And, uh, and then I give exact statistics of not just how many times, like it's not just a question of counting how many times do we get it, this interchange, but how many times do we not get it where they spell it the normal way. And so I'm hoping that this methodology can maybe be a model for people to use it for other regions because we don't have anything like that for Egypt. And that's where we have most of the material. We have good treatments of Egypt, but a lot of it is like, okay, here's 10 examples. And the general tendency is this, but I think what we would really want is to say, Okay, for Egypt in the first century, it's spelled this way this percentage of the time, this way this percentage of the time, and get those exact statistics. And so I think that would be next, right? Because I just treat Judeo-Palestine with that degree of precision. And then the other regions, I kind of just summarize what's there based on other scholars or based on a few searches I could do myself. Um, and so we really want for each region for somebody to come along and do those really careful statistical presentations. I think Leslie Threate with um, Attic Greek is probably the closest because... Uh, that book does have a lot of quite a, a good presentation of the data. It's also very long, um, but that's a number of decades old now. Yeah, so there's plenty more to do in terms of covering each region with a really careful statistical analysis, and and then hopefully we can form you know a really good idea of how Greek was different in each region by each century and and, and place. So yeah, plenty more to do if people are watching this and like, oh, I want to do a PhD on this. Well, um, you know, I think it'll probably be a, at least a little bit of time before somebody needs to do Judeo-Palestine again, but um, <laughs> you know, pick another region and do do what I did and improve on my methodology. I'm sure people who are, you know, more equipped than I am in sort of, uh, you know, databases and uh, statistical analysis can can do a great job. And so just do more regions like this. Yeah, yeah, that's great. I, I know that's always a, it's always like a weird question because once you finish something like this, it's like, oh, I can think of 10 dissertation topics, you know, yeah, on this yeah, one chapter, yeah, exactly. right? Yeah. But at the same time, yeah, I mean, you, you read through some of the, um, you know, sort of review blurbs on, on the back. And I mean, I think, you know, a lot of them have really nice things to say, but I, I, it really is, you know, this work is, will be the kind of like go-to reference for a very long time, you know? I mean, and, and that's, I think that's what's so helpful, you know, as, as, as I picked it up, I was like, how, how did he fill up this much space with, you know, New Testament Greek phonology, and it is because you give the data, you know, right. and, and I, that that is what's so helpful because I can go back and check your work, right? And I don't have to yeah, do yeah, all exactly. the, the labor that you, um, you know, have already done for for all of us. Thank you for for doing yeah. that. Just highly recommend uh, Ben's two books from um, Erdman's, mm-hmm. and it is like I said, uh, will be the the works on New Testament Greek phonology for hopefully a long time. Hopefully. Yeah, I hope so. I hope it's it's lasting. <laughs> but again, there's always the cool thing is people can always improve and there's going to be more inscriptions discovered and more data and everything like that. So hopefully it's the, you know, it, uh, it's in a long line of people have gone before me and just one more thing to add to hopefully inspire future things too. So. Yeah, that's great. 
So that's all we have time for on this episode of the Biblical Languages Podcast. Thank you, Ben, for joining us. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. And thank you to all of our listeners out there who have taken the time to listen to the Biblical Languages Podcast, brought to you by Biblingo. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Thank you for listening to the Biblical Languages Podcast, brought to you by Biblingo. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app and leave us a review. You can also follow Biblingo on social media to discuss the episode with us and other listeners. And don't forget to visit biblingo.org to start your 10-day free trial of Biblingo.